From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 10th. What happened during Utah's 2023 legislative session? It felt big, fast-moving. Over the last seven weeks, the state's political reporters were working at top speed to summarize key issues for Utahns. This includes Sean Higgins with our partners at KUER, whose reports from the Capitol we heard here on the newscast. Today, Sean joins us to walk through some of the biggest moments of the session. You know, I don't know about you, Sean, but to me, the Utah legislative session this time around felt like lawmakers were moving really, really fast. I'm curious if if you felt the same way as a politics reporter, that things were moving extra quickly. They absolutely did because they absolutely were fast at the beginning of the session. We had two really big controversial bills, Senate Bill 16 and House Bill 215. Those were the transgender youth health care and school choice bills. Those moved with committee hearings in the opening days of the session. And then they moved to be signed by Governor Cox a, a matter of days, like a week or two later, we, we saw Governor Cox sign those into law. Speaking with um, some GOP leadership after the session, that was a conscious choice by them. They really wanted to get these issues that they knew would divide people out of the way early so they could focus on things like the budget, appropriations, and, and tax cuts was another big uh, item on their agenda this year. And they really didn't want the specter of these really controversial issues hanging over them while they were trying to do this other, some would say arguably more important work of balancing the budget and making sure the state keeps running. So I know it, it caught a lot of people off guard and a lot of people were really thrown into the deep end with these two big controversial bills. But that was the choice they made and they went forward pretty quick. And then, of course, towards the end of the session, you know, you had a big controversial issue pop back up, which is abortion. Um, Can you expand on what lawmakers did there? Yeah. So House Bill 467 kind of came towards the later half of the session. This is just generally called abortion changes when when a lawmaker files a, a bill, they need to name it. And this was just titled abortion changes. And what this effectively does is it stops licensing abortion clinics in Utah starting later this year. And then by January of 2024, those clinics will all be closed. And speaking with the bill sponsor, Representative Carrie Ann Lizenby, um, she really drilled down on this is specifically targeting clinics that provide elective abortions in the state of Utah. Um, Someone who is having a medical emergency and needs an abortion can still get one. They just have to go to a hospital or a state-approved facility. Same if uh, a pregnant person is pregnant as the result of rape or incest. They can still get an abortion legally. They just need to go to a hospital or, again, a state-approved facility. But also an interesting part of this bill is it adds a further restriction to those exceptions. So all of this, with the exception of medical emergencies, because pregnant people can have medical emergencies up until very late in their pregnancies, but it's particularly for people who are pregnant as the result of rape or incest, they are now no longer able to obtain an abortion after 18 weeks of pregnancy. So that was another big change that was in this bill. And then, you know, of course, there was water. Um, Where did the legislature land this year on water, either, you know, protecting water resources throughout the state and also the Great Salt Lake? 
So this was an interesting one. We had the year of water is what it was dubbed last legislative session. You really had these ground shaking changes to the way the state looks at water policy. And you did see quite a few bills addressing water this session, but they were really kind of tweaking what was already in place. And and talking to some of these stakeholders, their kind of big takeaway was you can't reinvent the wheel every year and expect to see progress. Like they kind of went through that big monumental change last year and they're wanting to fine tune what they already have in place and, and see where things go in the next five or so years. A couple of things that did happen this year, um, there was the creation of someone, a position called the Great Salt Lake Commissioner. So that would be like a point person for all of these different stakeholders, whether it's the agriculture industry, the activist community, uh, municipalities that are all drawing in these water, this water that affects the well levels of the Great Salt Lake. There's one person that controls that now instead of all these disjointed organizations that are trying to coordinate with each other. Um, but as far as kind of greater Utah water is concerned, it it wasn't so much monumental stuff, little changes to how people can utilize groundwater. Uh, metering, secondary metering was something that the legislature took up this year. But again, last year was the year of water. This was not the year of water 2.0. I would guess you could call it the year of water 1.5. <laughs> and, and briefly, Sean, do you mind going over uh, the big takeaways from water last year, as you mentioned, maybe the year of water 1.0. So the the year of water, which was last year, really had these three big pieces of reg- legislation dealing with things like in-stream flow, a lot of enhancements to the watershed throughout the state, and then kind of groundbreaking to help address the lake's long-term restoration. The legislature actually approved the creation of a new funding account specifically for managing water levels of the Great Salt Lake. Um, And those monies will come from mining revenues related to mineral extraction in the lake and would actually allow the state to purchase water rights for the lake, which is something that is kind of groundbreaking and not something we've seen much. So that was kind of the the year of water last year. And like I said, this year was just kind of fine tuning a lot of the work that was done last year. You know, finally, Sean, do you expect ongoing coverage on topics like the economy, taxes, water, and then also, you know, handling current culture war related coverage when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues and abortion? I think the issues, particularly with the economy and taxes and and all of that and and water, that's going to be something Utah talks about for, I can't see them not talking about it going forward. Year after year, those will be topics of discussion. I think when it comes to these more controversial topics like abortion, LGBTQ issues, a lot of that will depend on a lot of what the courts do. I mean, we've had these big bills passed that are now law, and we have heard rumblings that lawsuits are eminent on, on some of these things, particularly the transgender youth health care bill is something that the bill sponsor himself, he said, I, I believe the quote was, I bet every penny in my bank account this gets litigated. So we're really kind of waiting to see what happens as far as the court system is concerned on some of these more hot button issues, particularly abortion as well. The trigger law that is effectively banning all elective abortions in Utah is currently held up in court right now. And a lot of what this abortion changes bill that was passed this year, a lot of that hinges on that trigger law going into place. Um, so we'll really see how that works out over the next few months, even if years. It, I mean, courts work very slow. They they want to get things right. So 
it's certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on and continuing to report on as long as it takes. Sean Higgins, politics reporter at KUER. Find a link to their summary of what happened during Utah's 2023 legislative session in the show notes of today's news. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Local thrift store and nonprofit Wabi Sabi could be forced to close soon. The building's owners are looking to sell the property. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Emily Arnson about what that could mean for the organization. The property uh, that Wabi Sabi is on and the buildings that it inhabits are going up for sale. And that's not because Wabi Sabi is selling them, but because Wabi Sabi doesn't actually own them. Um, The landowner is a limited liability company based out of Salt Lake City, and the property has been listed, um, which is kind of scary news potentially for the nonprofit. I spoke with general manager Leah Baer, and she said that they're going to try really hard to um, raise money to buy the property and stay where they are, hopefully, but it's going to take a lot of community support to get there. Yeah. Is there a listing price yet? $1.35 $1.35 million. And it's important to note that the landowner actually has let them stay on the property rent-free for about eight years. They've only been paying property taxes. So, you know, there has been a, a good degree of generosity with their ability to stay on this property on 100 South. But it could be coming to an end, which which would be kind of scary for the store. Yeah. Would that mean they would have to close most likely? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, Leah said they would, you know, if they were kicked out, they would certainly look for another property, but it would be really hard to find something else that they could afford, let alone something with as good a location as they currently have, which is, you know, very accessible to folks who might not have cars or things like that. Um, so she said it, it could mean the end of Wabi Sabi. Mm-hmm. And as of right now, do they have any plan for fundraising? She didn't have specifics yet, but she said the community should keep a lookout for a lot of fundraising events and communications that are going to come out soon. She said they've already received one generous donation, which is really awesome, but they certainly need many more. So, And she said, you know, anyone can reach out to her if they're interested in helping or donating. Yeah. And can you talk about sort of the wider implications of what it would mean if Wabi, not just as a store, but as like an entity closed? Yeah, absolutely. So as folks may know, Wabi Sabi is not only a thrift store, but it's a partner for a lot of local nonprofits. Um, They provide thousands of dollars each year in support for their nonprofit partners, something like six to eight um, nonprofits locally that folks can vote for with tokens when you check out. Um, they also keep a ton of materials out of landfills. They provide community meals and, again, tens of thousands of dollars of vouchers for um, community members who may not be able to afford you know, clothing or to go shopping in other areas. Um, so they are a huge boon to not only local organizations, but a lot of underserved local people. Okay, do you want to talk about transit? Yeah. So next week is going to be the launch of a new uh, local transit pilot program. March 16th is the ribbon cutting. Um, As folks may know, this transit program is going to provide two free services to residents um, and visitors alike in the Moab Valley. One is going to be an on-demand door-to-door service that you can uh, seek by calling a number or downloading an app on your phone. Um, And the other service is going to be a fixed route van service up and down Main Street in Moab. Mm -hmm. And so this is for tourists. It's also for residents? Locals, definitely. Uh, It's for both. It's funded by the state from um, UDOT hotspot funding, and there's been some funding from the city of Moab and, and Grand County as well. And so how does it work? How do you schedule this uh, this service? Absolutely. If you want to schedule door-to-door service, um, you can either call 1-833-MAT-FREE, um, or you can download the MAT, which is to say Moab Area Transit um, app. Uh, and it will be launching Mar- March 16th, which um, I believe is next Thursday. Cool. So.
anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, so this week um, I was also lucky enough to write about Moab Community Gardens just in time um, for folks to rent beds for the upcoming season. Um, so for those who don't know, Moab Community Gardens is a branch of the Resiliency Hub, a local nonprofit, and they own right now two beds, about to be three beds, um, scattered throughout the Moab Valley that they rent out for very low costs uh, to local residents. So it's a great way to garden if you don't have the space or the time to develop beds um, in your own living area. Yeah. When does the season start? When should people get over there to get their beds ready? Soon. Uh, Today, actually, uh, Friday, March 10th, I think is the at least um, early registration deadline that would um, guarantee you a bed or a half bed. So I would absolutely get on their um, Facebook or the Resiliency Hub's website to complete an application if you do want to get a bed for this year. And do they provide any kind of help in terms of like, if you've never had a garden bed before, will they help you with the planting and help you learn about different types of plants? Yeah, I think they they had a workshop series last year that I think they're scaling back a little bit this year. But I have heard from a lot of the gardeners that just being there around other gardeners is a really good way to learn about gardening. Um, I spoke with Holly Lammert, who um, I think said she's like, I'm not an incredible gardener myself, but just being around all these other people and um, enacting this kind of casual knowledge sharing can be a huge boon to your own gardening skills. So I think it's, you know, if you are uh, a newbie at the whole gardening thing, which I certainly am, I think this would be a great way to get involved. Yeah. How much are the garden beds? They range from 10 to $60 and you can offset whatever cost you pay. You can donate a proportional number of volunteer hours. And Becky Mann, who's the manager of Moab Community Gardens, did say that if cost or volunteer time is prohibitive for anyone, you know, reach out and she's happy to work with people because they do want this to be accessible to everyone. And, you know, 10 to $60 for the whole season is certainly a really affordable rate, I would say. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so if people want to get over there, get their beds what should they think about growing for this season Ooh, that was really interesting i got to ask about like what works well here what doesn't work well um happily in general apparently we have you know a very long hot growing season so it's pretty good for most crops um i know that becky mentioned that i think things like cabbages and other kind of colder weather crops don't do so well and they they have had a lot of issues i believe with squash bugs recently too so some types of squash can be really hard to grow but i've heard good stories about growing peppers and Holly grew eggplants and corn like very successfully. So I think most things grow well here. Sophia Fisher, reporter with the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. If you've seen any mule deer around town wearing collars, that's because the Utah Division of Wildlife is trying to track cases of chronic wasting disease. CWD is a fatal illness that affects deer, elk, and moose. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks to Emily Arnson about their coverage. Chronic wasting disease, or CWD, is a neurodegenerative brain disease that affects cervids. And it's been spreading in wildlife in North America since it was first detected in Colorado in the 1960s. And the Moab area has the distinction of having the highest known rates in Utah of CWD among mule deer, which is why a lot of times around town we'll see those kind of mangy deer. Okay, so is a side effect of CWD being mangy? Animals that have CWD will progressively lose weight and behave super abnormally. So they have like a drooping stance and tremors, and then they drink and salivate excessively. But an animal may live up to several years before showing symptoms of, di- of the disease. And so in Moab, there's all these studies trying to quantify how many animals have CWD, but it's really hard to because really the only way we can figure that out is when an animal is dead. 
And so right now, the Utah Division of Wildlife is collecting this monitoring data, and they're also putting out warnings to hunters. You know, like if you kill a deer that has this disease, you definitely don't want to eat it. Okay. And just to maybe assuage anyone's fears, it can't be transmitted to people? Right. Yes. So it can't. There are no recorded cases of CWD infecting humans, um, but the CDC recommends not eating meat from a CWD positive animal. Um, There's a little bit of concern that the disease could become a threat to humans. Um, Like mad cow disease can sometimes transmit to humans through contaminated beef. Um, But again, this hasn't really been studied super well. So um, hunters can have their harvest tested for CWD by the Division of Wildlife Resources. Um, And in that case, the animal would be destroyed. In other (laughs) wildlife-related news, do you want to talk about the mountain goats now? Yeah, definitely. Moabites who attended um, a lot of the Moab Information Center lecture series last year may remember Mallory Lambert, who is currently studying the relationship between pikas and mountain goats in the LaSalle Mountains. Cool. Can you describe what a pika is to us? Yes. Pikas are really cute. They're basically prairie dogs, but they can live in high alpine environments. So not a lot of animals live their whole lives in high alpine environments, but mountain goats are one of them. Pikas are one of them. And this is like a really interesting study because neither of those animals have a lot of research tracking their interactions with other animals. And especially in the LaSalle Mountains, mountain goats were introduced there recently. They were introduced in 2013, and then another 15 animals were introduced in 2014. But meanwhile, the pika population is entirely native. So Mallory Lambert became interested in this because she was assisting Joanna Varner, who is a professor at Colorado Mesa University, who kind of specializes in pikas. Mallory was assisting her on a project and then noticed that mountain goats were grazing in the same area that pikas were. So if these mountain goats that are introduced are negatively impacting the pika population, then it brings into this question of which animal do we more prioritize? But it also could be that the two populations are helping each other. So that's kind of what Mallory's looking into. All right. Where else do you want to take us on this news journey? Yeah. So I also this week chatted with the two artists who make up Roundhouse Platform. Their names are Naomi and Brendan. And Roundhouse Platform will be the artist in residence at the Mark. Great. Can you talk to us a little bit about their project? Yeah, the Marks Residency Program is called the Reuse Residency, and the entire idea is that they invite artists here for a month, and the artists will create something using items from Moab's waste stream. So these are items from the Kenyaland Solid Waste Authority and also Wabi Sabi Thrift Store. So last year's artist was Justin Tyler Tate, and people may remember he created this like very interactive play sculpture that was installed at Lions Park. This year, Roundhouse Platform... They like creating sculptures that are very place-based. So, like, they take architecture into consideration. They take history into consideration. They describe their process to me as they're going to spend the first two weeks getting to know the community, and then they want to create something based off of that. So they're not entirely sure what the final product will look like yet, especially because they're still getting to know both the community and the materials. But Melissa Morgan, who is the assistant director at Moab Arts said she's really excited to see what they make. Me too. Uh, Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about that you want to mention? 
On Monday, March 20th, Roundhouse Platform will host a three-hour workshop, and that workshop will include a studio tour and creative drawing and modeling exercises, and then also a group discussion. So more information about that can be found on the Moab Arts website. Allison Harford, reporter with the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.